0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 70 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. I'm joined by Ann Todd, an author and historian who has worked at the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia, and has written and consulted for the National Geographic Society. She's also given presentations for the National Park Service on the history of the Office of Strategic Services. In fact, I invited Anne onto the podcast today after reading her book about the OSS titled Operation Blackmail. It's a wonderful book about a facet of espionage history, which I haven't covered nearly enough here in the past. That is the use of propaganda, deception, and psychological operations in wartime. It's also an in-depth character study of the kind of people that were called upon to perform this work and the skills, experience, and perspective that was critical to their mission of getting inside the enemy's mind. But before we get into the discussion of propaganda and deception in World War II, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including James H. and Brian A. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure.
0: I'm glad to hear it. This is something that I've said at the beginning of many episodes, but it's absolutely true in every case. I've been looking forward to this discussion for months now because I, I picked up your book, think it was last year, as a matter of fact, it, w- it was quite a while back. And I've been looking forward to trying to find a way to contact you and to hopefully get you to agree. And luckily you did. So here we are.
1: Well, I'm glad you found me.
0: So speaking of finding and connecting with people, this book mostly centers around Elizabeth McIntosh, and she really has an amazing story, which I'm, I'm very happy to share. But how did you yourself first learn about Elizabeth and how did you end up connecting with her as well?
1: Well, Justin, I was on the hunt for a dissertation topic. I knew I wanted to write about World War II. My father was in the Battle of the Bulge. My mother was an Army nurse. I always wanted to be a spy. So um, OSS documents had recently been declassified, and there were lots of them. I started with secondary literature and landed on Betty's book, and Sisterhood of Spies, everyone should read that, about women in the OSS. A helpful archivist at the National Archives actually gave me her phone number, and I cold-called her. Oh, wow.
0: You got a hold of Betty? You just you just gave her a call out of the blue?
1: I mean, really. I just called her. You know, she's a rock star in the intelligence community. She picked right up, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, may I come visit you, interview you? She said, sure. So I think
0: mean, it's just that simple. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how approachable some people are in that way. I've I've had similar experiences here with some of my previous guests. You know, I've had some people that within a certain niche are incredibly well-known. And outside of that niche, they're not known at all, you know, which kind of fits right. uh, Betty in a certain way, I think. But still, it's, it's wonderful to connect with these kind of people. So did she just open up, like open right up to you as soon as she found out what you wanted? Or was it like a gradual process of getting to know her?
1: You know, she's a she was a really gracious person, and so I showed up at her house, met her cat, had some tea. (laughs) You know, I said, Miss McIntosh, I'd really like to write about you for my doctorate and possibly publish it as a book. And she said, Why would you want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) so we went from there.
0: So did you end up spending a, like a lot of time with her or was it just a couple of big interviews and then followed by a lot of research or, or something else?
1: Well, after my second visit with her, I was basically commuting to D.C. from Texas to work in the archives and to see her. And I realized, I, you know, this isn't working. So I moved up there where I could be near her and we saw each other. You know, she was 95 when I met her. She lived to be hundred and I spent more evenings with her than not.
0: Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. This was in, in 20, what, 2014, 2015, something like that. Is that right? No, let's see.
1: I graduated in 2014. So five years before that.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. She,
1: and, well, she died in 2015.
0: So. Ah, I see. I see. Well, it's wonderful that you had the opportunity to get to know her like that. And that and that furthermore, you know, kind of selfishly, we all got to read your, your work and get to learn about her and get to know her through that medium as well.
1: Well, we became great friends. Mm, we called yeah, yeah. each other cousins.
0: Oh, wow. That's nice.
1: You know, Betty had a lot of layers, so you had to peel them away kind of like an onion. Mm-hmm. Um, she was whip smart. Extremely dry sense of humor, strangely magnetic, she had boyfriends hovering around her until the day she died, when she oh my was gosh a hundred
0: wow, wow so, yeah, hmm. I wouldn't have expected that, but she did it's clear in your book though that she went through some very big changes some some very distinctive phases of her life. you know, I think you made that really clear in the book, so it seems like those really you know created a very very complex and interesting person in the end.
1: yes. Yeah, she, having spent a lifetime in the CIA, she um, knew how to keep things close to her chest, so everybody knew one side of Betty, and there were other sides they just didn't know.
0: Mm, I see. Interesting.
1: Well, she was such a good spy in the end, really.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, what a fascinating person, so I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot about her over the next hour or two here. So. Your book, going back to your book, it's OSS Operation Blackmail, and blackmail is two words, not one, as people might expect when they first hear it. And there, you have a really specific reason for using two words for blackmail, don't you?
1: Oh, yes, I do. So when Betty was serving in the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations, Operation Blackmail was her very first operation, her very first attempt to weaponize black propaganda. So your audience may know black propaganda goes to point of origin. You convince the enemy they are listening to a broadcast from Radio Tokyo when really it's being sent from a hand crank generator in the jungles of Chittagong. You forge documents, you send news accounts from fake newspapers. So Betty got a hold of a captured mailbag when the Japanese were overrun in Michna in northern Burma. And she realized the postcards were from Japanese soldiers and they'd already been stamped with the censor's chop, which meant they could be put right back in the mail system, the mail stream to Japan with altered messages. So she erased the penciled kanji script, substituted her more nefarious message. She was fluent in Japanese, by the way. She hired a little Burmese assassin to go place the mailbag where it'd be found. And it worked so well that she hired him to start killing couriers and bringing her the bags. So the operation was black and it involved male.
0: Mm, yeah, it's perfect. That's, that's such a stunning story, too. And I'll bet that that is a layer of her that a lot of people would not have expected that didn't know already about it, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So... You mentioned that point of origin is the difference between black propaganda and, I guess, white propaganda. So, white propaganda is you know that it's coming, it's being broadcast by your adversary. And black propaganda you think is from your family or your chain of command or your government or something like that. Is that accurate?
1: Exactly. White propaganda basically operated from the truth, as in where it was coming from and what it was, you know, what it was saying. They didn't really stray too far into the deception.
0: Okay, okay. I see. That was information operations, I guess, and influence operations. Those are terms that are kind of in vogue now, but the, the black propaganda is is really fascinating stuff because you think you're getting, a, like you said, a handwritten postcard from your soldier son or your soldier cousin or something like that, and it's actually Betty. Writing you a message. What what was the content of these messages that she wrote on the postcards? Like saying the war isn't going well, or I, w- I want to come home, or something like that.
1: Yeah, lots of those. But my personal favorite was uh, a message from a soldier to his young wife, and you know it was a loving message. I miss you. I can't wait to come home. She erased that and put, dear Ke- dear Keiko, I hope you and the children are well. I myself have fallen in love with a kitchen maiden and will remain in her village when my unit moves on. Please go on without me, your loving husband, Yoki.
0: Oh, my gosh. Betty. Right? That is, is
1: that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, that is, that is devious for certain. But, yeah, that, that would certainly divide the population in a way when you do enough of those anyway, if you send enough of those out over a long period of time. But, that's yeah, that's very okay. clever, and it really strikes to the heart of morale, certainly.
1: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, aside from the intercepted mail that you mentioned, what other kind of operations, propaganda operations, was OSS running at that time?
1: Well, there was rumor mongering. There were fake newspapers, you know, with fake stories about bombing runs that had happened that never happened, that it would demoralize the Japanese troops if they thought their home villages were being bombed. And they would find these fake photographs of casualties and run those things like that. Radio broadcast. You know, you think you're here in Radio Tokyo and you're not.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine they would listen into that that frequency and get something that is not the news that they were expecting at all. Was it more like, was it more fake doom and gloom kind of messages about the progress of the war or or, I mean, with the radio broadcast or is it something else?
1: Yeah. It was. Well, first of all, they would play really good music to uh, hook them in, you know, and Mm -hmm. the radio stations they created, they would snug it right up on the dial against Radio Tokyo. So if a soldier was spinning the dial, he might land on the fake broadcast.
0: Um, Oh, wow. Okay. That's very clever. So they they think they're on the correct station and they're just a hair of a frequency off, I guess you could say? Right.
1: They got mm. really good at that.
0: Wow! 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 That's impressive. And, stuff.
1: and Betty would write the scripts for these broadcasts. Hmm.
0: Dude, that must have been very clever stuff. Did what kind of like challenges did they face? Because well, first of all, I should ask: Was the OSS also doing this in the European theater, or was this like a Pacific theater only?
1: No, they were doing it in the European theater. Marlena Dietrich was very involved in that. You know, she was the famous singer. Mm-hmm. And she she would sing, and then it would. There was a station called Solden Doctor West. That was the broadcast that would go out to the German troops. So yes, it was happening all over in every theater, except really the Pacific. Although later in the war, things started coming out of San Francisco for the Pacific.
2: Mm, you know
1: okay. MacArthur. Didn't want Donovan's people in his theater,
0: so yeah, right, right. I know there's some enmity there between those guys yeah, no
1: no love lost between those two
0: mm-hmm. so were there any like unique challenges for creating this kind of black propaganda in the Pacific because it seems like the the Japanese culture and country was less well-known, and maybe even less knowable for a lot of Americans at that time. Did they have more challenges, or, or, or less challenges, or fewer challenges, I should say?
1: Well, yes. I mean, the Japanese were inscrutable to most allies, and the British, you know, were there in the theater, and in fact, controlled most of the resources. And the British not only didn't get along with OSS, because OSS had a Reputation for not liking colonialism. But also, they didn't believe the Japanese were smart enough, clever enough, or even human enough to be persuaded of anything. Hmm. So, I know a lot of the Allies felt that way about the Japanese. They cared nothing for human life. But the whole reason Betty was pulled into OSF was her deep familiarity with Japanese language and culture. And so she adored the Japanese. And so that made her absolutely deadly. <laughs> so her her motto was, love thine enemy if you want to deceive him.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that that's a very, very intelligent way of looking things. Things I would say, I guess that was something that a lot of people did not take into account, which made her especially good at that.
1: Yeah, it really did. I mean, she, you know, she was a reporter. She had dealt in truth and transparency, you know, quaint concept. But, (laughs) I mean, she was shocked at how good she was at this. And, I mean, she just didn't think she had such a capacity for lying and deception, and she just fell right into it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, what exactly was her path into the OSS? You you did mention that she was a reporter, but you know how, how did that lead to her eventually going over to the Pacific with the OSS?
1: Well, what had happened, she was a reporter in Hawaii. That's where she grew up. She had lived with a Japanese professor with her first husband, and became fluent in the traditional ways of Japanese living, all aspects of the culture, the language, and OSS was very keen on picking up people with linguistic abilities. So that's how they came across her.
0: Yeah, I think that they sought her out specifically, if I recall, from your book and they, she didn't even realize that she was being recruited at the time. She just thought she was meeting somebody while she was kind exactly. of on a reporter beat, I think. So yeah. Were... A,
1: a, ch- a chance meeting, which was anything but.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it must've been incredibly rare to find someone like her, like a, a non-Japanese citizen who spoke fluent Japanese and would be willing to use that against the Japanese immediately as well. So I'm sure she was very, very valuable right from the start to them.
1: She was, and when she got to OSS headquarters and met her teammates, they ended up being, a lot of them were missionaries or sons and daughters of missionaries who had lived in Japan. Mm. So, you know, some of the missionaries were reluctant to be part of the war effort, but they came around very quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. So was she, and I know that you said she was in Hawaii, so she was actually very close to the attack at Pearl Harbor when it occurred, wasn't she?
1: She saw the planes fly over.
0: Boy, that must have been an unforgettable sight, the whole world changing right in front of your eyes like that.
1: Oh, it was, yes, it was traumatic. But as a reporter, she jumped in a car and went right down to the middle of action, started interviewing nurses and whatnot. She wrote a piece, and the censors wouldn't let it out. But it was recently... On the what was it the 70th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, the Washington Post published it finally.
0: Hmm. 70 years later, and for her work to come out, that's amazing. Yeah. So because she was there and she saw firsthand the, you know, the 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 trauma and the the death and destruction, did that in any way uh, affect her previous like love for the Japanese culture and language and that sort of thing? Did it I mean, turn him? Turn her against them in any way, or did she just kind of, you know, emotionally remove that part from the equation?
1: It didn't turn her against them, but like many Americans, she immediately, including Japanese Americans, you know, Daniel Inouye was right there on the island with her. They immediately wanted to join the war effort.
0: Oh, right. I can imagine a lot of people did that, especially there in Hawaii. And if I recall correctly, she tried to go over and be a war correspondent right off the bat. Is that right? But she was denied that opportunity?
1: Oh, yes. Yes, she was ready to go.
0: <laughs> so what did she end up doing up until she joined the OSS?
1: Well, she tried to publish several stories. You know, the army had slapped a sensor lid down on the entire Hawaiian archipelago. She couldn't get anything out. She grew very frustrated. And then Chris script-powered news service offered to bring her on as a stringer in Washington, D.C. And she jumped on that and covered the Eleanor Roosevelt White House for quite a while. She ended up not liking that either because she was writing about women's rationing issues and wanted something, you know, more (laughs) war-related. And so that's about the time when OSS. Grabbed her.
0: Hmm. That's that's amazing, honestly. That you can have direct access to the White House and to the First Lady, and think to yourself, "Still, you know, there's more I could be doing than this." I, oh, I can absolutely. control more. And, and she was well, correct. I mean, yes.
1: she was she was a real go getter. She was she was described as indefatigable, a pistol, and a, she she just wanted to be hard charging all the time, and really. People had trouble
0: stopping her. (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. So since you mentioned that a lot of the other people that she ended up working with were missionaries or sons of missionaries, did she stand out in a big way from her counterparts or her coworkers in the OSS, or was it full of rock stars, so to speak, that joined the detachment, the morale operations branch?
1: It was full of characters. We had artists, journalists dog trainers, elephant trainers, admin, and you name it. They were all over the map.
0: What was it? So such a varied cast of characters, like you mentioned, what was it that made them write for Black pop- propaganda operations for the morale operations branch?
1: Well, OSS in general attracted quite a cast of characters. You know, it was... People who would never make it in the regular military, but had unique talents. And Donovan was really good at finding those people. If he had an operation and you had a talent that he needed, he didn't care what color you were, what gender you were, where you went to school, he brought you in. So, and recruitment got a little out of hand, actually. But you know, people who were charged with vetting all these people kind of got overwhelmed. But it was it was part of what OSS was. It was a grab bag of intellect and artistic characters, and you name it.
0: Yeah, certainly, it's there's amazing people that you know. I've seen, I've read so many biographies, so many portraits of these amazing people that served during that time, and and you know they continue to just top each other with their outlandishness and their effectiveness as well. And you mentioned that a lot of these people wouldn't have fit in in the normal military, but they still had to go through some very serious training, even the propaganda people, right? Can you talk a little bit about how that went for them?
1: Well, the propaganda people basically had three days of training for semi-military operations, no boot camp type thing. You know, (laughs) the They had to go through psychological evaluation, which was rather comical. And, um, Betty and her buddies had, I think a day of weapons training, which didn't go that well. (laughs) So they basically didn't train other than in the techniques of their craft, rumor mongering, faking things and whatnot. Now, Special operations, operational groups. those guys, they went through some very intense paramilitary training, commando-style training. Mm-hmm. They brought in people from Hong Kong to train them in the dark arts. But again, they didn't waste time on learning to march or polish their shoes.
0: Right, right. Of course, that's that not an OSS function to begin with, I know. So just three days of training, That's that's not much, but I guess – did they end up staying pretty far from the danger zones, even over there in the China-Burma-India theater, or were they ever in personal danger, her her group, when they were working?
1: Well, in early 1945, Betty got on a C-47 and flew the hump, which at that moment was terribly treacherous. She flew behind enemy lines to Kunming up on a 7,000-foot plateau. So during her time in China, she was absolutely behind enemy lines, and at the very end of the war, a civil war broke out, of course, and she literally had to dodge bullets.
0: Mm. Yeah, maybe that, that she could have used a little bit more than those three days of training, but she did come out of it in one piece at least. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean you never know what's going to happen in, in war, of course, and they had to get them overseas as fast as possible, I'm certain. Yes, absolutely. So we, we talked a little bit about morale operations, but was there anything else going on over there that Betty worked on besides the radio broadcasts and the newspapers and the intercepted mail? I mean, was she assisting with other stuff or was this like a full-time pursuit coming up with these these stories and these um these lines of effort, I guess you could say, to demoralize people?
1: Oh, it was absolutely full time. But while she was in India working on the You know, Burma theater. Basically, she sat around with her friends, brainstorming, coming up with things. And by the way, the things they came up with totally terrified the men. They would listen in on this and just be mortified, you know, at Mm -hmm. the schemes they came up with. But when she got to China, it was more of a, she joined an ongoing operation where it was more like a regular newspaper that would come out on a schedule. I mean, in Burma, it was – they just made things up as as they went along. But in China, it was like the regular production of a newspaper, the way it would have been back in Hawaii. Hmm, Okay. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned – I guess it was in Burma then that they had huge problems, just logistical problems, like actually getting access to a printing press for a lot of the stuff that they needed to distribute to begin with, right?
1: Well, she arrived there. I mean, to do this work, you have to have special materials. You have to have the right paper, the right ink, the right printing presses. And she landed in Delhi with typewriter ribbon and no typewriter. That's Mm. it. The British had everything she needed. But as I mentioned, the British didn't like the Americans. (laughs) They felt... The Americans wanted to take their colonies away from them, which they did.
2: <laughs> so, doing but, yes.
1: but so Betty was really good at charming people, and she literally charmed the British into giving her the materials she needed.
0: Hmm. Okay. Was that like a weeks-long process or months-long process? to well, actually? Get well, to it run?
1: started the minute she got there. I mean, that captured mailbag came from the British. This gruff, you know, British officer in exchange for her threat ration, told her she could dip her hand in this mailbag and whatever she could pull out <laughs> with one fifth, she could keep. Oh, so wow. that's how it started. But when Operation Black Mail got rolling, the British were intrigued and even started showing up to help. So
0: Okay, that's good. So a minute ago, you mentioned that they just kind of sat around brainstorming, but was there any sort of like an approval process for what they were doing or did it play into a larger effort or did Betty just kind of have like free reign to write and do whatever she wanted where she was? Oh, was There, there was
1: absolutely, absolutely an, an approval process, but they kind of just ignored it. You <laughs> know, <laughs> there was no instant messaging back then. Things had to go through radio and, you know, dispatches and stuff. So they would basically come up with a scheme, work the scheme, and then send a formal proposal to DC. And by the time they heard back, they would ask forgiveness instead of permission (laughs) and just move on to the next operation.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess it worked out well in the end. So yep. was it just it was just Betty and her and her coworkers essentially coming up with and and running all of this? They didn't have to go back to at least you know like the regional headquarters or the C, the China Burma India China Burma India theater headquarters something like that. They could just kind of implement quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean most of the detachment OSS detachment commanders were military and also OSS, and they kind of thought. What morale operations was doing was a bit of witchery, and so they kind of just didn't want to know about it.
2: <laughs>
1: so they didn't, you know. So and her pals just didn't really trouble them with what they were doing.
0: Hmm. I see. And you mentioned that the men were kind of mortified before, by what they were coming up with. So it was Betty, and was it was it mostly women that she worked with in the Operation Blackmail?
1: Yes, it was Betty, her friend Jane Foster, Julia Child was in on it, Paul Child, who, where well, Julia Child was McWilliams at the time. She wasn't married to Paul Child. Paul Child was in love with Jane, and so he was always sort of lurking around, and he would end up sitting down and brainstorming with them, so it, it was a little cabal there.
0: Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah, I've always heard so many times over the years that Julie Child was involved with the OSS, but I didn't really know the specifics of it until I read your book. And it was it was really fun read, obviously, and it was really great to kind of see how all that played out. And she was like you said, she was single at the time and she met Paul on mission, I guess. Right. And he he wasn't even I mean, it wasn't love at first sight. Exactly. They kind of came together later on, I suppose. Right.
1: Well, she was smitten with him. He was in love with Jane, and then Julia and Paul and Betty were sent to China. Betty was always Team Julia, you know, rooting for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Julia won him over with Jane out of the picture.
0: (laughs) You're here because you're fascinated by the Cold War. And now there's a fun and interactive way to introduce your family and friends to the topic. I'm talking about 15-Minute Cold War, a new strategy-based card game for up to four players. As one of the great powers during the Cold War, use your armed forces to attack opponents while defending yourself with military, scientific, and economic assets. There are also wild cards based on real events and people to keep things interesting. For example, how will Oleg Penkovsky weaken one side or strengthen another? Players don't have to know any history to start playing. Just learn the color codes and point values of each card. My eight-year-old daughter understood the game mechanics within a few minutes and has already won two rounds against her mom and I. There's also an expansion edition available for game nights of up to eight players. Find it at 15mincoldwar.com. That's 15mincoldwar.com. And make sure to follow at 15 War on Instagram. <music> Yeah, that's that's funny. A little a little love triangle there in the middle of the war, but I guess it was not by any means the only one. Across and the, you
1: know Betty, as she became a celebrity chef,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but Betty always said when she met Paul, she couldn't even boil water, and <laughs> Paul started taking her to restaurants and explaining how to pair wine and all that kind of
2: stuff.
0: Oh wow, wow! He was a huge influence on her then. I didn't realize that. Huge, yes. Okay, good. So was Julia, was she involved in, I mean, was she one of the idea girls then? I mean, I know that she was working on a couple of different things, if I recall correctly, from your book.
1: Well, you know, they always say Julia Child was a spy. Well, no, she wasn't. She was something much more important. She was a registrar. She was the clearinghouse for intelligence that came in she collated it and she was the one who sent it out to be actionable in the field she was indispensable to Donovan and she came up with a a rolodex kind of today it would be a spreadsheet that was nothing short of brilliant so she was way more important than just mm-hmm. a spy
0: well yeah that's a that's a tremendously unappreciated part of the whole Thing is, you know, collating information and getting it to the people who need it. But it's not the glamorous part, but it's it's absolutely as critical as collecting all of that stuff in the first place.
1: Yeah, if you've ever known a registrar in the museum world, for example, you know they made things run.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I haven't met any myself, but it certainly makes sense. So once they created this stuff, I know that you mentioned earlier that she had this Burmese assassin who could, who could take the mailbag back and put it into the stream somehow, but how exactly did they do that? I mean, I know that they could kind of hijack the radio signal a little bit, and I know that they could you know put stuff back in the system, but how did all that work?
1: Well, there were Japanese couriers. They, they were free-ranging all over Burma. They would go up and down the trails to all the units and gather up mailbags and, you know, take them to the sensor. The censer would put their chop on it. And then they would continue on with their mailbags to get them to Tokyo. And so Betty hired her little assassin to start just waylaying them, killing them, bringing her the mailbag. And when she got everything done, the little assassin would take it back and plan it where the Japanese would find it. Hmm.
0: Was he putting it back with the body like in a matter of hours or was he just putting it somewhere where a patrol would come across it, for example?
1: Well, it varied. Usually it was where a patrol would find it. But as this operation proceeded, they got real good at it and could work quickly. And so I don't know for sure, but I would imagine sometimes it would be within a 24 hour turnaround. Hmm.
0: Okay. Did they ever have any way of measuring their success or getting any kind of feedback on, on what effect all of these operations were having on Japanese morale?
1: Well, you know, psychological warfare is opaque at both ends. You never really know what your recipient looks like, your enemy, and mm-hmm. your, or if, if your propaganda has had its desired effect. And you, and the enemy never really knows who you are. So it's, it's not for instant gratification. I mean, I often say there's no clear victory in the battlefield of the mind. Mm
2: -hmm. You just
1: put your stuff out there. That's why a lot of the military called it witchery, voodoo, and thought it was just worthless. However, one of her better operations for Betty she forged a surrender order and made it look like it was from the Japanese high command and that was so effective that people walked out of the the Japanese soldiers walked out of the jungle clutching those things in their hands oh, so wow. that was a a rare example of something that clearly worked
0: mm-hmm. yeah they were not known for surrendering in large numbers either up until the very end of the war i take it no yeah that no. would have been incredibly that would have been quite a coup then for her to be able to convince them with that forged letter that they should surrender after everything they'd been through.
1: Yeah, that was a really interesting operation because what she did was convince a Japanese officer that was a POW to help her and make sure the, the wording was correct. The language was correct. They had the right seal and all that kind of stuff because this, This officer was just fed up with the war, and she convinced him that if he helped her, it would be a quicker end to the war. Hmm. You know, psychological warfare, if it's done correctly, can save lives on both sides.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. This POW that mentioned – am I recalling correctly he turned out to have studied in the United States and knew one of the people that was there in the, the theater? Is that is that the same person? A- I'm
1: yes, of? yes, Mr. Akamoto. Yes, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, I think that there, that was an amazing scene when they they came to see him, if I recall correctly, in the in the cell or wherever he was being held, and he stood up and recognized one of the OSS guys as a former classmate from twenty years before or something like that.
1: Exactly. Yeah,
0: amazing stuff. Can't imagine something like that happening, but you know they find each other again, decades later on opposite sides of the world and on opposite sides of the conflict too
1: yeah so many of the officer corps in Japan, especially the Navy, had studied at like the Naval Academy and whatnot so yeah you ran across that a lot
0: mm-hmm. well, amazing coincidence, nevertheless, so Betty was there for about eighteen months, if I recall correctly, how did the war kind of end for her? I mean we know obviously that it ended in a in an allied victory in. Japanese surrender, but what was Betty doing up till the very end of the war?
1: Well, it ended abruptly, just like Pearl Harbor started abruptly. She was going about her daily tasks and learned that the bomb had been dropped. So things pivoted. One of the things OSS was tasked with was finding out where all the American POWs or allied POWs were being held. In Japanese internment camps. And so as soon as that bomb was dropped, OSS loaded up in airplanes and went after these people to get them out. Lots of times they landed and those Japanese camp commanders didn't even believe the war was over. It's amazing. None of them were killed. Lieutenant General Wainwright was one of the first that they pulled out. So Betty was with everyone else is working in support of those operations.
0: Okay. Okay. I see. So did that end up with her seeing the the Japanese face-to-face, like meeting some of these camp commanders and that sort of thing, or actually seeing some of the POWs who were being liberated? Oh,
1: yes. She saw the allied POWs being mm-hmm. liberated. Absolutely.
0: Mm. Boy, that must've been a tremendous moment for her, for them, for everyone. I would imagine seeing the, You know, lives saved at the end of the war now that it's over with. Yes. So what about everybody else on the team, the ones with Jane and and Paul and Julia? What happened to them after the war ended? Where did they go? I mean, we know about Julia and Paul for the most part, but what about the others?
1: Well, Jane, she was recruited because of her fluency in Malay, the lingua franca of what's now Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And so they literally dropped her into Jakarta at the very end of the war to help liberate the Dutch and the other allies that were being held there. And she also ended up dodging bullets because things were so tense between the Dutch, the British, and the Malay people. So that was a really invaluable operation that she did. Very exciting, actually. And let's see, Julia was sent back to D.C. Paul was sent back to DC. After a while, Paul had to hang out in China for quite a while before he could get his orders. And so he acquired a great deal of parachute silk and had pajamas made for everyone he did.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. That must be nice. What a memorable <laughs> item to have for your service over there. Yep. Good. So I guess that Paul and and Julie eventually they got married and she became very famous. And uh, I guess a lot of people listening already know about their story. Did yes. they both leave the surface right after? You know, he got back from China. I mean, were they out of the government totally by that point?
1: Paul went to work for state. Okay. And
0: okay.
1: Julia went to Cordon Bleu.
0: That's right. I don't honestly don't know much about her besides from your book and watching that movie a few years ago, uh, Julie and Julia. I saw that a couple of years ago, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. But that's that was about my only exposure to Julia Child, I'm afraid, other than your book.
1: Well, she stayed lifelong friends with Betty. Betty was speaking to her days before she died. In the Smithsonian, they have her kitchen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so it was Betty's husband who outlined all her pots and pans on the pegboard in the Smithsonian.
0: Really? Oh, I didn't know that. hmm Okay, that was her husband that she married after the war, the OSS colonel. Am I thinking of the right person?
1: That was Fred McIntosh. So Betty's first husband stayed in Bangkok at the end of the war. They just went their ways. Mm -hmm. And then she married her CO for Detachment 202 in China. He went to work at the Pentagon and, and tragically dropped dead of a heart attack. So then her third husband was Fred McIntosh, who was a fighter pilot that she met in Japan. She had in her little bungalow, she had all her men framed in pictures.
0: Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. And I think in your introduction, you mentioned that she referred to them as three happy marriages. Like there was nothing bitter about the the split from her first husband or anything like that. It was very amicable. They just were different people by the the time the war ended, I guess.
1: Nothing bitter. Mm-hmm. Betty didn't have a bitter bone in her body. Mm. She just would love people.
0: Yeah, she she really does sound wonderful the way you've portrayed her in the book.
1: She was so, one of the most incredible people I've ever met.
0: Mm, that's good. That's wonderful. I did want to ask you about Jane a little bit more, because I know that Jane contributed quite a lot in the, in the theater and then in Indonesia. Right after the war, but she ended up herself being accused of being a spy, as you mentioned, a communist spy, just a few years after that. So did Betty or do you believe that she really was because the accusations were coming from other former communist spies as well?
1: Well, some of those former communist spies were charlatans, grifters, all, you know, thieves. But... I mean, Jane is an upsetting story. She went down a dark path. She had been a communist before the war in the thirties. I mean, millions of Americans were, but unfortunately the NKVD worked hard to recruit her after the war. Now I've gone through all the NKVD transcripts and they assigned her a code name. But you know what? They did that with everybody that they had an interest in. That didn't, that didn't mean they had been recruited. Mm-hmm. So I'm team Jane on this. I, I believe if she did anything, it was very low level. Maybe when she and her husband at the time got hard up for money, that's possible. Betty maintained her innocence. I went with Betty, so, but it's very controversial. The FBI has never backed off their accusations. You know, I wrote her up for the CIA, and she's still just kind of considered persona non grata, even though her service during the war was exceptional.
0: Right, right. That's a, that's a very kind of murky story story. From from what I've read, and I'm certainly you've read more about it than I have, and, and Betty served with her, you know, in in yeah. theater, of course. Oh, so well, they were,
1: best friends. With... They were mm-hmm. best friends. They were best friends.
0: Yeah, it seems like Jane's. I mean, her activities during the war and then right afterwards in Indonesia, those are kind of above reproach, right? I mean, nobody, nobody is claiming that they were there was anything going on at that time. Is that right? Not from what well,
1: well, when she was in the, in in Indonesia. She wrote up, he interviewed Sukarno. She wrote up what was happening on the ground there and kept trying to send it to the State Department and they ignored it. And that really frustrated her. So when she got home, she wrote an article for the San Francisco Chronicle, just venting. And it was published, but after a period of time, the FBI decided that that was classified. Well, it wasn't classified. It had been through State Department, OSS. No one stamped it classified. Hmm. But that's what they hung around. So and it, it's ludicrous, really.
0: Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> so if I if I recall correctly, it was years later, like in the late 50s, Jane was – she was charged. She and her husband were charged with some espionage-related crimes, but they were never convicted of anything. They were never even tried. I don't think, right. right? Because they were out of the country. Right. So there's not really any um, resolution to that story.
1: No, there wasn't. Well, there's a sad, uh, a sad resolution,
0: they, I guess. But, but.
1: They, well, they were charged with multiple counts of espionage, some of which would have been punishable by the death penalty. Mm-hmm. They, the FBI pursued her into Paris. The French intelligence refused to extradite her. So that's what put the end to that. But she was never able to go home. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That certainly hangs over you in a way, and the FBI is not going to forgive or forget once they've no, they don't. <laughs> <on you. laughs> well, yeah, the the reason I was asking is because I did an episode a while back. I think it was episode thirty seven of this podcast. For anybody who hasn't heard it already, and it was about Boris Moros, who was one of her accusers, and he claimed that he you know knew her well and worked with her and, and Jack Sobel and the other members of a of ring, but as is very clear in that episode that I recorded, you know, Boris Moros would say absolutely anything and do absolutely anything to keep himself out of trouble, whether with the Incompany or with the FBI. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, he was- I mean, he's
1: a liar, (laughs) such a liar.
0: Yeah, he was, I I don't know that, I mean, I can't judge because I wasn't there, this is all 50, 60 years ago, but he certainly, you could not trust much of what he said about his own life and the stuff that he gave the FBI later on. So I, I don't think that there's ever gonna be Clear resolution at this part, at this point, about about Jane, about Boris, about the Jack Sobel spy ring that we talked about in that episode, about any of that, and it's unfortunate that you know she passed away uh, without ever, you know, any kind of resolution to her story, really, because that's going to hang over her name, whether it's true or not, you know, for eternity in a sense.
1: You know, and it's a shame because to me, the real evidence should have been in the NKBD archive. Or the Venona transcripts, or one of those things, and it's just not there.:
2: hmm. yeah, at I think least for,
1: for wartime operations, which is what they initially charged her with:
0: right, right. I, I think that a lot of historians I get the impression a lot of historians are really waiting for a closer look at the old Soviet intelligence files because they're they're still very closed off in a way that CIA files have not been, so uh, mm-hmm. maybe there'll be some clarity in that in that situation one day. Hopefully. Well, who knows? Who knows? So, well, what about Betty? So you mentioned that she stayed close with Jane and she stayed close with Julia. So she went back into intelligence work eventually, didn't she?
1: Well, after the death of her second, yeah, Richard Hepburn, after the death of her second husband, she became very sad, really. By that time, she had done several things. She worked for Voice of America She wrote two wonderful children's books. He died, and so Ellen Dulles brought her back in to the agency, and she had a long career. She ended up going to Japan, working undercover. She ran agents. She was, yeah, she had a great career with the CIA.
0: Wow. So uh, in your book, you, I mean, you mentioned that, but there's hardly any more detail than what you just said here. So is that information still classified about what she did in her later second career, so to speak, with the CIA? Or or do you anticipate that that is going to come out as yeah. well? Yeah,
1: I keep filing Freedom of Information Act requests <laughs> that keep getting denied, so Probably. we'll see.
0: I know. They'd certainly expect you to wait a long time to get any clarity on a lot of this stuff, unfortunately. Yes. yeah that's why I tend to stick so much with early Cold War World War II period and even earlier with the podcast because it's hard to get actual you know firsthand accounts and documentation on a lot of other stuff from oh, yeah. the, from the archives but I you mean, know every year they de- declassify a little bit more
1: When the OSS archives were declassified it was a treasure trove. Not many people have tried to get into them to write a doctoral dissertation. Because the finding aids are still difficult. There was one man who was sorting it all out, John Taylor, but he passed. And then that was that. So you have to really be determined to get in there and just go through boxes and boxes to look for one thing.
0: Wow. So, so it really comes down to that. Like, I mean, books can be, or, you know, stories and books can come to light just based on how organized one of the people, one of the archivists is, is that kind of a. Well, I a way mean,
1: to if you're working with primary sources, you have to get in the archives and find mm-hmm. those sources.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if things aren't cross indexed well and the archives, they're doing their best, but it was such a huge amount of material that it you know it's difficult there's other okay. topics dealing with the US military that is much easier more clear cut to get in and work with
0: mhm yeah i'm i'm certain i'm certain but i'm glad that people like yourself and a couple of my other previous guests as well have spent a lot of time in the archives and have dug up a lot of really informa- really interesting information which you know the readers and the listeners benefit from right so well thank you this is really interesting stuff I'm I'm really love the book like I said are you working on another book right now and do you have any intention of revisiting this project or have you moved on to a new one
1: Well what I'm doing for the CIA museum is I'm researching you know 4500 women served in the OSS and Betty interviewed a hundred of them for her book but there are just so many that did amazing things. But if you look in the roles, they're often designated as clerical. And so I am systematically going through finding these women, getting in the archives, finding what they did, really. I mean, you had secretaries, quote unquote, that had linguistic skills and ended up working in Bern, Switzerland and whatnot. And they were, Doing all kinds of things, running agents, interrogating POWs, handling extremely sensitive information. So I'm slowly working on as many of those as I can find. I think I'm up to 35 now. Oh, wow. Working with my friend, who's a former director of the CIA Museum. So I'm going to use each of those women, hopefully, as a chapter or part of a chapter. And my working title is they weren't just secretaries.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that's certainly mm-hmm. true. Okay, that sounds very interesting. Do you have a, a, a time frame for that, or is it just a work in progress at the moment?
1: You yeah, know, I should have a time frame, but I don't. <laughs> it's a work in progress.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't you don't want to put a date on it because that can come and go, and the, the research is the most important thing, getting it right.
1: Well, and for, you know, during the entire COVID episode, I had to work with the only secondary sources, mm. but now I've gotten in the archives to beep up those stories. So I will, I will soon be putting together a proposal for Naval Institute Press. You know, they publish Blackmail, and they're such great people. I love that press.
0: Yeah, I'm very impressed with them so far. There, there are several other authors the, from Naval Institute Press that I hope to interview in the near future, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to your next book as well. well thank you. So, absolutely. So, Anne, do you have like a public-facing website or social media or anything if people want to look you up after they listen to this episode or connect with you in any way?
1: You know what? You can just email me at com. Ah, okay. Well, that's easy uh, enough. I'm afraid I'm not much of a social media person.
0: Sure. Sure. I understand There's a double-edged sword there. Believe me, you don't want to get too involved in it, I promise. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you. This has been so interesting. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I'm definitely looking forward to anything else you might publish in the near future.
1: Well, this has just been an absolute delight. I thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that I'll be in touch with you again, because I certainly have some more OSS-related questions as well. If you don't mind, I would love to email you once in a while.
1: Oh, that would be great. I'd love it.
0: Great. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Anne. Take care. You too. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to read Anne's book, OSS Operation Blackmail, I'll send you a PDF of the book's preface and introduction completely for free. Just follow the link in the show notes to get your own copy and dive into this story in even more depth. And if you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at spycraft101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come.
2: Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.